0: Now you talk about terror. What about for me?
1: I've
0: been terrorized all my day. How all my days.
2: In the fall of 1980, I was a second-year student at Harvard Divinity School. I intended, like my father, to become a Presbyterian minister. But I was by nature a writer and a news junkie who devoured at least two newspapers a day and had already published freelance articles in papers such as the Christian Science Monitor. I could not, however, reconcile the social activism of my father, who was involved in the Vietnam anti-war movement and the civil rights movement, with the supposed neutrality and objectivity demanded by American journalism. It was then that I met Robert Cox, the former editor of the Buenos Aires Herald, who was a Nieman Fellow for the year at Harvard. Bob had reported on the crimes of the Dirty War in Argentina, which saw some 30,000 Argentines disappeared by military death squads in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The victims were held in secret prisons, savagely tortured, and murdered. Many families to this day do not know the fate of their sons, daughters, siblings, and spouses. Bob received frequent death threats in a climate where some 60 Argentine journalists were also kidnapped by the military and disappeared. He fatally accepted that he too would be killed, which he said gave him a strange kind of comfort, and continued to doggedly persist in making public the names of those who had disappeared and the anguish of their families. In his example, I saw that journalism did not have to be divorced from morality, that while the truth was always paramount and should never be twisted to serve one side or another, we have an obligation as journalists to give a voice to the vulnerable, especially those who are being silenced and persecuted by the powerful. I took a leave from Divinity School to study Spanish at the language school run by the Marinal Society in Bolivia and report on the heinous dictatorships in Latin America. I covered the Falkland War from Buenos Aires for NPR and then, after returning to get my degree from Harvard, left for El Salvador, where I would spend the next five years reporting on the conflicts in Central America. The last piece of sage advice Bob gave me before I left for Bolivia was to take with me the four volumes of George Orwell's collected essays, Journalism and Letters, which became my secular Bible. A new film. Messenger on a White Horse, available on Amazon, documents Bob and his wife Maud's heroic stand in Argentina. Joining me to discuss his experiences in Argentina, the documentary, and what it means to be a reporter is Bob Cox. So just before we begin, I, I can't say enough uh, how important you were for me, uh, and a, a kind of model that I carried with me throughout the next 20 years uh, that I was uh, overseas. Um, and not not just me, Stephen Kinzer and all sorts of other reporters uh, feel the same way. You really uh, held up for us what it, what it means to be a reporter, especially in uh, societies where there is tremendous amounts of oppression. I, I want to begin with Andrew Graham Ewell's very fine book, a State of Fear. He also worked with you at the Buenos Aires Herald and it chronicles that period up to the 1976 coup when the military took over because i think it's an important component to understanding what came next can you describe that climate uh that led up to the coup
0: well you had you had so much violence every day that, that with andrew we and nobody was taking any notice of and we decided to just publish a list of people be, being murdered by one side or another, in a kind of underground war that was going on prior to the actual coup itself. And it was just unbelievable, because there was so much violence. But And the newspapers, they did two strange things anyway. Later on, it was a different thing. But at that time, they'd hide it all away. Until the moment
1: came when, working with the military, the press went in... And started to
0: emphasise the violence that was coming from the left. When there was violence from the left and the right, it became became almost unlivable at that time. So people were prepared for every, anything. And as Argentina, you had a tradition of military coups, which were in those days you you talked about a. Uh, um, uh, um, a a soft coup and a a, a hard coup. And most of Argentina's coups had been soft coups. They literally came in, painted things a bit, and cleaned things up and called elections. And so much the same kind of thing was expected this
1: time.
2: Yeah, you had underground groups, the Montaneros, and these were left-wing radical groups, um, and constant kidnappings. When that coup took place uh, in 1976, the Army Chief of Staff Videla under Isabel Perón takes power. And uh, in the documentary, it shows that even the Buenos Aires Herald, even people like you, saw the coup as a kind of relief.
0: Yeah, we thought that at least they would stop the killing. They'd stop the killing, which was, you know, going on on both sides, that they would just restore
1: law and that they would operate within the law, bring the people responsible for the violence to justice. That's what we really prayed for, quite honestly prayed for.
2: How long did it take you to realize that this was not what was taking place, that the military was now aggressively kidnapping and disappearing? I should say that very few of the... Some 30,000 victims, I think a 1,000 or something have been identified. Many of them were taken in what they call death flights. They were drugged and dropped into the uh, ocean. Uh, and I'll let you tell the story about the crematorium. You and Maud. I mean, it's an amazing story. But, but just what, did you realize gradually or talk about that process? Well, to begin with,
0: we clearly got an idea that things were not going to be the way we hoped they would be because the first thing that happened was that we were we were instructed by the military having taken over that we were not allowed to report any any acts of violence um, any disappearances or any without f- official uh, backing and so that was the first indication and then it was known, but you didn't know quite what was happening. And then with Andrew Graham hughes it happened. We got a, Andrew got a letter from an old couple who knew his father. And they tried to tell him that something terrible had happened, but they couldn't quite explain it. The reason they called him was because they published a, a death notice in the newspaper, a funeral notice. And there was a slight mistake in it and they wanted to correct that. And realizing what was happening, we went out to see them. So that was the first, con- and, and there the confirmation was unbelievable because what we discovered was is that the, their son-in-law had been, who was running a, a, a chemical laboratory there, who was taken away. He went quite correctly, in a way, to begin with,
1: and he was found later on more dead than alive, having been tortured so badly. And then we heard the story and we discovered that on that, that
0: I rather later, later I discovered that particular place, they had just taken people quite without just on the day of the coup, they stopped everybody, they stopped everyone in the street and asked them for their, their, their
1: papers and, uh, entity cards and just took people away en masse. and it was later on that,
0: that I heard that in fact what had happened is, is that they then routinely tortured
1: everybody. And when people are tortured, they'll say anything at all. I, I'm, I'm encapsulating a bit because I became very close friends with the the the
0: uh, the secretary of the Papal Nuncio, an Irish priest. Kevin Mulden, who I knew as Kevin, Monsignor Mulden, And he had called me one day later on and said, Bob, come, you must come quickly. I must tell you about this. This man came into me and said, I want to confess to you that when I was taken away, they tortured me and they said, dummy nombres de la orga, which was the slang to say, give, 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 give us, uh, ten names of people in the guerrilla organization. And he gave, he thought, what do I do? We've got to stop this. And he gave 10 names of the most respectable people he could think of, thinking that there would, nobody would think that they could
1: possibly be a member of a terrorist organization or a guerrilla organization. And they all disappeared, he said. The, uh, it, it was all around you at that time and, but you couldn't quite be certain of it, but I, I don't know what to say exactly, that, but one had to go on producing a
0: newspaper. And we decided, both Andrew and I, we decided that we found a way of asking for habeas corpuses, which gave us some kind of cover. It wasn't really, and we stopped doing it later on. But we decided we just had to report what was happening, because fairly early on, too, we discovered that journalism can save lives. We could save lives if we could quickly get something into the newspaper. That would make the military
1: halt or stop. So we would quite quickly. People were coming to us. We didn't have to go out anymore.
0: I, I, as I was going out beforehand to understand what was quite exactly going on in the incident that you mentioned, where uh, the, um, with Maud, we we heard that they were burning bodies in the crematorium. And, at midnight, from midnight onwards in the nighttime. And we went out and saw the smoke coming from the,
1: the chimneys of the crematorium. And it was exactly what was happening.
2: How long did it take you to realize how extensive uh, the torture centers – because it was quite a vast apparatus. I think, what is it, up, upwards of 300 clandestine centers. I and mean, we're talking about and, – and, of course, they were disappearing – not left-wing guerrillas they were labor leaders student activists or journalists as i mentioned uh how long did it take you to realize how extensive it was how long i suppose
1: thing is when i look back now and check up i found that we did report very early on much earlier on than i had thought uh but we could only report what we could actually confirm because I was always worried that the military would try and entrap us in some way or other by coming with some phony story that would then show us up. But we, I, 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 it,
0: I think this is what remains with me all the time. It was so obvious what was happening that, but people managed not to see it. I think that is what worries me so much and I found myself haunted too by Hannah Arendt who said there were so few people who cared in Germany in this case there were so few people who were honest enough to see what was happening now they they, they it was not easy and early on I you know I realized that when people see something being somebody dragged away and thrown into a car and then the car screams off and they have machine guns out of the way, and they threaten everybody on the way to this unknown place. That And somebody sees that. To begin with, they expect to see something in the newspaper or on television the next day, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing. So they, and that's what happened. And the, the military controlled television, radio, but there were some independent, and the new, major newspapers were free. They could do what they want. They could have made a decision at the very beginning as we made a decision that we've got to somehow tell our readers what's going on. And they didn't, they decided that, well, they became, they worked with the military. That's what it amounted to.
2: Well, The Buenos Aires Herald, which was an English language paper, although there is a large English speaking community in Argentina. I think the number is about a hundred thousand, if I remember correctly. Uh, But you, you were alone. Uh, And you were also, you did publish your editorials in Spanish in the documentary. They, Somebody goes to change a tire or something in the garage, and there is one of your editorials in Spanish up on uh the wall. but you took on this outsized importance for uh and especially the 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 mothers of the plaza de mayo uh these courageous mothers who uh protested because their children had been uh disappeared um you you were uh, you were alone. Uh, uh, largely doing this. And I'm wondering if that experience at that time made you rethink uh, your role as a reporter, as a journalist.
0: Well, what I discovered early on is that we could save lives, that journalism can save lives. Made me realize how important journalism is. Now, these were very special circumstances, and I did have a lot of support to begin with. It was underground support, but there there were some heroes of that time. Tex Harris, an American diplomat, who was sent down to watch the military regime because at that time they were trying to come up with a nuclear weapon. And that was his job. And when he came down, he was horrified by what he saw. He went to Plaza de Maggio one day and handed out his card to all the mothers that he met there and said, come come to my office and tell me. He opened the, the doors of the embassy, I suppose because he was such a fine man that the uh, there was certainly, he eventually was taken off and his career could have absolutely ended. But he was the first one to take down names and take down the names of missing. And so we had a, he had a, a, a something like 10,000 names of, of, of disappeared people on card indexes in his office, helped by a woman, a German woman, actually, a German extraction.
2: Well, this was under the Carter administration where there was exactly. some sympathy with Pat Darien in charge of human rights. Exactly. And then, exactly. of course, you shifted to Reagan. Uh, yeah. and, and that's when Tex Harris, I think was shuttled off to AID or something. Uh, I just well, had to... a lot of pressure
0: before then. It was actually before then, but pressure from business interests in the U S who wanted to go on selling arms to Argentina.
2: Hmm. I just and, have to yeah. say in uh, Tex Harris saved my career. Uh, you probably don't know that.
0: Well, I didn't know that.
2: Uh, he was at move to AID and a man of, of course, great moral probity and courage. And, uh, the, there was a war in the Reagan administration against reporters who were covering and writing about the atrocities committed by the military in El Salvador. And they framed me, (coughs) accusing me of falsifying a story, uh, and, uh, uh, did a pretty good job of convincing, I was writing for the Christian Science Monitor at the time, the editors that that story was falsified. And suddenly the foreign editor got a call from a guy named Tex Harris, and he explained who he was. And I want to tell—he said, "I want to tell you everything your reporter wrote is true." And are, this is a campaign to crush him and stop his reporting. And it, it absolutely saved my career. I was a young freelance yes. journalist. Yes, oh,
0: Tex was a magnificent human being. He was a glorious person, absolutely wonderful. And you know, somebody like him—well, we knew. Of course, he would talk to the CIA. He talked to the FBI guy, so he he knew pretty well everything. The CIA and FBI were in touch with the military, and so you know he never gave me those kind of details. But what we did is work together when we could see that there was somebody that we could possibly save by uh, if we could get something into the newspaper about them uh, and, and give them some kind of foreign, you know, say they. Were, would I mean, something that has to be truthful obviously but say they had studied at uh, at Harvard or, or whatever uh, and so that that would or and it could be anything anyway but the idea was to alert the diplomats of the democratic countries who would then start asking the military about them and that would make the military worried about things and so and well text was just magnificent at that time
2: you, t- you say you, 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 you realized you had to go to diplomatic parties, which you hated. <laughs> uh, but those kinds of connections for the reasons you just pointed out were vital.
0: Very vital because we could, you know, I could interest them in these cases. And, uh, the, I mean, what has been forgotten now is there's a tendency in Argentina to
1: make, um, the guerrillas sound heroic and to forget and to argue that all the missing were heroic guerrillas and they weren't there were lots and lots of innocent
0: people picked up people were taken away because their name appeared in in, in the address book at that time you had address books in uh, the address book of 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 somebody who was Possibly involved, we, we we will never know that because the military decided they were they were not interested in finding out who could be guilty of some kind of crime or not. They were just interested in disposing of of, of people.
2: There's they a hev- heavy cost that you, Maud, ultimately your children pay. Talk about the kind of pressure they put you under.
1: I. I i think i ignored it really um they used to follow me all the time and i used to play
0: as it out as if it was a hitchcock film because i insisted on just living a normal life i think that i think it's probably very risky when i look back on it but i think it might have helped me because i think they couldn't understand who i was and why i was when i would go to work i would go on the bus and the guy would follow me and There'd be a fellow reading a newspaper and he'd drop his newspaper and jump on the bus if I got on the bus a bit earlier. Um, all kinds of things happened. They, 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 one day they unscrewed all the, uh, all the, um, they, they loosened all the bolts on the front wheel of uh, a, a car. Fortunately, we were coming back from the country where I was with all the children. The car was packed. With all our kids and we suddenly saw the, the, the wheel rolling away in front of us. Uh, I, I, these were just odd things that happened. Um,
1: telephone would ring and, you know, you, we got used to those kind of things, all those, you know, they were constant.
0: And we had a game that we used to play. We used to, used to they used to call up the newspaper and, and we'd say we, you know, we, we don't expect. We don't. We have a time that you, you, you can phone up with these questions. You know, trying to not to laugh it off because it wasn't a sort of gallows humor or anything like that, but to keep keep to keep sanity really.
2: And yet there was a realization. I, I think you in the documentary they talk about one reporter who carried a razor. You yourself uh, said that you. Came to accept that you would probably die, but you didn't want to be tortured.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, we, with Jim Nielsen, who, who was the, who wrote editorials with me, um,
0: great person. And fortunately, this is something that I think is important. He was of the right people. I mean, I've given up even deciding with myself whether I'm right, left. I don't think I'm any of those things. And I always thought journalists shouldn't be any of those things. They shouldn't be right, left. They should just try and be outside politics in that way. Uh, and he said to me one day, well, Bob, I'm not, you know I'm not going to let them take me. And he showed me he had this cutthroat razor, this old-fashioned cutthroat razor. which he, I suppose he thought he'd do so much damage they'd have to kill him. I had all kinds of ruses that I thought I would carry out. I would uh, get into an elevator and stop the elevator between floors. I mean, I I wasn't foolish in that way. But I did decide that it was a bit like I said to myself, well, I don't know if you know I really did think this, but or not. But it's something that I gave myself to carry, carry on. I said to myself, well, the first time you're on an airplane, you're frightened. The second time, it's the same what you need to do is and i decided that decide and the way to get over it any kind of fear you have of flying i did suggest this to people but nobody picked me up on it is to say to yourself this flight that i'm going to go on is going to crash knowing that it's going to crash you don't worry about it anymore so essentially that's what i did every day i expected and every day that went by it was a victory it was it was great until they went after my kids and my wife Um, well, I mean, they tried to kidnap her and god knows what was, they were madness. That was a time of enormous madness and I still have not been able to put it into a frame that makes any sense. The, the madness started unnecessarily, I think, absolutely unnecessarily. The situation in Argentina could have been worked out. But there's, I mean, it's a complica- complicated
2: country. Well, it reverberates today. I, I want to talk about your childhood. It is brought up in the film. You were in London during the Blitz. Most, I think, many of the children in London were shipped out into the country, but somehow you managed to stay behind. And it draws parallels between living in London during the Blitz, I guess you were seven or eight or something, and that experience in Argentina. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um A friend of mine once said to me he had a good war. It was Andrew
0: Graham Ull. He said he had a good war in Argentina because he went there to cover the when Argentina when the Argentine military made the big mistake of invading the Falkland Islands, as the British call it, Malvinas, as the Argentine call it. He had a good war. As a child, I, I you know, we we were happy. We were a happy band, and the people were too uh and i came across something of that in argentina because suddenly we got supported the newspaper very small i mean we could be swatted like a fly to begin with and then we became important and people would read the newspaper just to know something of what was going on and so we suddenly got people advertising who never advertised before and we saw the uh in a way, traditional advertisers of the newspaper, the multinational companies, withdrew their advertising from us. And so with not quite the same, because we did feel very alone, we'd see people who were friends of ours and they crossed to the other side of the street. I've heard this so many times now, I realize that it must be universal. You know, if you become a suspicious person in some way. And I, I became a suspicious person because by that time, I was supposed to be a communist to begin with. They had me down as an imperialist. Fortunately, the Navy man who was a murderer, uh, an unbelievably evil man, believed that I must be CIA and actually said to the American ambassador, Bob Hill, Bob Hill told me later on, he said, and when Masera said to me, I know he's CIA, Bob Hill. So I put an expression onto my face as if to say, it oh, might be true. but <laughs> And that might have helped in a way. It might have helped.
2: I want to talk, you go back, uh, they have a kind of truth and reconciliation commission. There's a very poignant moment in the film where you, you break down, you can't speak. Can, can you talk about what it was like to return to Argentina and, and speak about these uh, crimes, uh, this state terror that you covered? you know what i keep going back to is is this business that people
0: did not care that they in a way knew they didn't know everything it wasn't written down there they couldn't read it or see it and but the, everybody knew in a way what was happening and i remember meeting a brazilian diplomat and talking as i did to everybody that i met about what was going on in argentina and he he sort of dismissed it and said ah, But what I don't understand is the children, how they, what they did when they picked up any young woman, and some of them were pregnant, and if they were pregnant, they allowed them to have their children in the most appalling conditions. And then when the child was born, they killed the mother, the young mother. And those young, the grandmothers of Las Abuelas, the Plaza de Marja, were formed of these women looking for their grandchildren. That, I think, is the most horrific side of it. But the other thing is the Nazism. These people were, in a way, Nazis. again. When you went into one, I was lucky that I went to one of the um, so-called legal jails, not the clandestine prisons. And when you enter that after being stripped, you see in front of you covering a huge wall, enormous
1: wall, a huge swastika underneath it, Nazi nationalism, and and you would, they used to play Hitler's speeches to cover the sounds of people being tortured,
0: and as I got to know more of the military, I they more and more, I mean they boasted, they they, they thought that they were leading the third world war against international communism they also had plans to invade chile eventually brazil i mean lunacy got into their heads they hadn't fought a war for a 100 years until then and then the war that they did fight this dirty war gave them delusions of grandeur for a while but you can't understand how they could 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 be like that because they should be so ashamed of themselves and some of them were. One day, the uh, the uh, colonel, colonel, I got to know quite well because I used to go to the government house because they would complain about the stories that we were writing. And I said, "Look, I, I'm not interested. I just let these people appear. I won't publish a word about it. It's fine. You know, I'll give you a list of these people who I know you've got, and so tell us where they are, and you know what's going to happen to them, and that's fine. There won't be anything else." And then he said to me, but did you know? He said, ah, he said, we call them our centurions. These are these poor guys who have to go out and do these terrible things. And when they go back, he said, they can't kiss their wives and they can't touch their children. He honestly expected me to be sympathetic to him, not realizing, of course, that that echoes exactly what the
1: SS were told. They were told, you're doing glorious things but you'd never tell anybody about it.
2: Great. We're going to stop there, Bob. I want to thank The Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at Mm chrisedges.substack.com.